Hi, Vetfolio Voice listeners, and thank you so much for joining me for this episode, sponsored in part by Zoetis. For this episode, I was joined by Dr. Jason Stull to discuss infectious disease surveillance and outbreaks, something we have all become far too familiar with as of late. So for me, this podcast hit home a couple of different times because in addition to discussing infectious diseases in general, we talked about an outbreak of canine influenza that occurred in the Southeast not long after I graduated. And I remember that outbreak very well, so it was really interesting to hear the perspective of one of the disease investigators. Dr. Stull is an assistant professor of veterinary medicine at The Ohio State University and the University of Prince Edward Island. Over the past 15 years, he's taught and conducted research on veterinary infectious diseases with the main goal of protecting people and animals from infections. He's lectured to a wide audience on this topic, from practice managers and staff to veterinarians and technicians. He's conducted outbreak investigations and research on infection control-related topics. He holds a VMD from the University of Pennsylvania, a master's in preventative medicine from the University of California, Davis, and a PhD in veterinary infectious disease from the University of Guelph. He's a diplomate of the American College of Veterinary Preventative Medicine, and he had some great insights. Let's go ahead and get into it. All right, Dr. Stahl, thank you for joining me today. Hi, thanks a lot for the introduction and for the opportunity to, uh, to speak with you. Absolutely. We're thrilled to have you here. And we're talking today about infectious disease. So how did you become interested in veterinary infectious disease? Well, my my dad was a veterinarian and he ran a small animal practice. Actually, it was at, started out of the garage, right <laughs> next to the house. And anybody who has been in that type of situation knows what it's like. So, uh, you know, we were inundated as kids with uh, with veterinary medicine. But growing up in that household, I, I was always interested in veterinary medicine, but I wanted to do something maybe a little different, maybe have a slightly different path to what my dad did. In university, uh, you know, studied a variety of things, but, but really came across the field of public health, which I thought was fascinating and the, the concept of epidemiology or studying disease in populations. And eventually, I kind of married that with my, my interest in veterinary medicine and kind of came across the field of veterinary public health. And so during a master's degree in veterinary public health, I I further kind of went along with that and became really interested in infectious diseases. Um, So kind of understanding the epidemiology of of these diseases, the possibilities for new diseases to emerge or, or become apparent to move from one location to another, outbreaks to occur, diseases that can move from animals to people or people to animals, and then potentially having the impact or the ability to not only, you know, kind of study them, but also to potentially control them, and in some cases, maybe even eradicate them. So that's kind of how my my, my journey went along. Early on in my career, I, I worked actually in public health. So I was a public health veterinarian for the state of New Hampshire, and I also did some of my training in California. And through that, those experiences also had an opportunity to to observe and and actually eventually develop programs in public health to try and address some of these infectious disease concerns. And so since then, I've I've really been drawn toward veterinary infectious diseases and uh, really excited with kind of studying them and and learning as, as they change. As exciting and important, I think, as we, as has been so clearly demonstrated to all of us here in the past year and a half, 
What's your most memorable disease outbreak investigation? Having worked in, in public health, I, I was certainly involved in a lot of really interesting, sometimes scary experiences. Uh, had the opportunity when I was in New Hampshire, we had a series of outbreaks. So each year of Eastern equine encephalitis. So for those of you that are trying to go back in your memory box for that one, the specific disease, it's, it's transmitted by mosquitoes. It's a bird mosquito bird kind of uh, cycle. And then eventually these mosquitoes go out and they become infected with the virus and then pass it on to horses. Um, they can also pass it on to people. And this is a, a highly uh, fatal disease. Uh, so many horses will die from it and people that become diagnosed with this disease, many of them will develop you know, permanent neurologic disease or maybe even die. So when I was when I was in New Hampshire, we had a, an outbreak of, of, of this uh, virus. And so we saw horses that were becoming sick. We saw some uh, llamas and alpacas. Who knew llamas and alpacas lived in New Hampshire, but they do. Of course, people becoming uh, sick with this disease. So, so that was certainly uh, an, an important one and a memorable one. But, but probably the one that I guess I would say I learned the most from, I had the opportunity to, uh, to investigate an outbreak of canine influenza virus in the Southern United States a couple of years ago. So people that may be aware, a CIV or canine influenza virus made its way into the US in 2015 and uh, has, we've had, or I should say this, the current variant made its way into, uh, into the US in 2015. And since then we've had a, a number of outbreaks. And uh, so I had the opportunity to, to go to this particular location and to actually sit down with the veterinarians, technicians, and front-end staff, and practice owners, uh, as well as with some you know, boarding facility owners and daycare owners to talk about their experiences. So what was happening, what were they observing, and a lot of moments that were around their own lives and how this particular virus was, was impacting them. And so this became not only, of course, the science part of it to try to better understand how this disease was moving, um, what types of precautions we could try and put in place, what were some of maybe the barriers that were, were not being put in place, but also to kind of recognize the emotions that, that came with the outbreak. You know, I, so I, I've obviously been involved with a variety of different things, but one thing that came kind of was, was really apparent. I remember sitting down with, with one of the vets and he was talking about, you know, he's, he'd seen other types of respiratory infectious diseases in dogs before. This one was really different. He described it like a train that hit his facility. And so we went from, you know, one sick dog that morning to pretty much the entire group of dogs that he was dealing with in his facility of all being sick, some of which ended up dying. So uh, really impacted me quite a bit. They talked a little bit about, obviously, the, the challenges of, of also working with other facilities. So how do we not only deal with this outbreak uh, on from our own facility and our own staff, but how do we work as a community and the, and the challenges that that that, fa that we face with that? How do we deal with public perceptions, other groups that maybe we don't oftentimes work with, um, and then also of course the the obvi obvious infection control deficiencies that that unfortunately resulted in in clinic wide uh, distribution of the virus and an illness. And so I think, you know, again, marrying the science uh, with also some of the social drivers and some of the challenges really helped me appreciate the complexity of, of what we deal with and, and obviously has a lot of similarities to what we're currently facing with the pandemic. Um, and so thinking about obviously the individual patients, which, which we always do uh, in, in veterinary medicine, but also really extending that and the importance of what we do at the practice level and what we do at the community level that can really impact infectious disease transmission. And uh, you know, if we fail, 
and can't be successful at targeting infectious diseases at all of these levels, then, uh, then that's going to be a problem and, and we're, we're not going to be able to, uh, to really have an impact. Listening to you talk about the canine influenza outbreak in the southern United States, I mean, I'm here in Gainesville, Florida, so we were in a lot of those meetings, and I remember, um, you know, the the veterinarians from UF were holding meetings um, throughout the community to talk about infection control measures and where do we go from here and what do we do if the outbreak gets worse and all of that. It brought back all kinds of just memories and emotions. Mm-hmm. No, it really, it really does, and I. I think there's nothing like an outbreak to to emphasize to us what we do well and really where we need to uh, to, to do better, um, and and that's something that I mean. Hopefully, we don't we don't need outbreaks to do that, um, but but it definitely certainly is is quite effective at at showcasing that. Sure. So, can you share some of these effective strategies that help mitigate the number of sick pets during an outbreak? Absolutely, and and I think one of the most common errors, I guess, that, that I see is people not reacting as quickly as they should. Uh, and so certainly, you know, again, don't want to draw a lot, of, a lot of parallels with the current pandemic, but we certainly know that infectious diseases can transmit extremely fast. And if we can target and we can stop or at least buffer disease at the early stages of a, of a disease outbreak, where there aren't a lot of cases that are, that are in the population, we potentially have the ability to dramatically change that that curve, right, as as to where it goes. So reacting quickly and re- reacting somewhat aggressively, and you know, and I'm not saying that we we should do things without inadequate information, but uh, or with inadequate information, but we should try and make good decisions early on. And so we may not commit completely at the beginning, um, but even some simple basic steps to infection control and prevention can really mean the difference between an outbreak that, be, that is, or a cluster of cases that, that doesn't go any further to having to shut down your practice and uh, you know, potentially being out of business for, for multiple days or even weeks. So what I'm talking about here are, are you know, simple strategies that, that we all know. So the concept of quarantine, the concept of isolation. So obviously quarantine here where we have individuals that may have been exposed to, for instance, the pathogen that we're worried about. So they've been in the same room, they've been next to the animal that's sick. And we, we take extra care of those individuals so that they, if they do become infectious, they don't spread it. And then the concept of isolation, where we have known animals that are sick and we remove them from the population so, so that they're, they're not gonna be transmitting the disease. Again, these concepts not only are important for large outbreaks and big concerning things, but even small stuff that we deal with in day-to-day veterinary practice. So, you know, canine infectious respiratory disease complex or CIRDC uh, with, you know, whether it's canine flu, whether it's parainfluenza, whether it's bordetella, these diseases have a tendency to kind of, they can, they can really mushroom. And if we act quickly, we make a big, big difference. So from there, it really depends a little bit, obviously, on the particulars of what the organism is, how it's transmitted, how infectious it is, and how aggressive, I guess, as a, you know, as a, as a veterinary group we want to be. It really, though, comes down to some pretty basic stuff. And, and these are, you know, components that really every veterinary staff member, whether you're a veterinarian, whether you're a technician, whether you're a front-end staff person, I'm sure is somewhat familiar with and really needs to, to kind of own. And so it's things like, you know, cleaning and disinfection. So that's really important, simple tool that can dramatically alter uh, infectious disease transmission. 
hand washing. And I, you know, every time you say it, like everyone says, what should we do? You should wash your hands. You know, it sounds like, you know, great. Uh, we have all this expensive equipment that we're investing in and it's a little bit of soap and water or alcohol-based hand sanitizer that makes the difference. But you know what it really is? It's the simple stuff that, that truly can make a huge impact. And in fact, hand washing or what I like to say, hand hygiene, because it's, it's sure soap and water is great, but alcohol-based hand sanitizer in general is just as good and is easier to use in a sense. It's uh, incredibly effective and probably one of the most and one of the most powerful, I guess, tools that we have against infectious diseases. Additional components, you know, identifying new cases early and then putting precautions to stop them from spreading. And then of course, you know, long-term preventative measures. So if there's a vaccine available, absolutely, we should be using that. Those can be extremely helpful. Uh, and we can, you know, talk a little bit about that as we, as we uh, go through uh, today. But I guess, you know, one of the areas that when I think about those that we typically even have even maybe struggle with the most is, is, is generally is putting practices into action. And so how do we get our staff members? How do we get the public to kind of do what we think they should be doing? How do we ensure that individuals kind of understand the, what they need to do and why they need to do it? That's the difference between a plan that looks really good on paper and one that actually is effective and works. And, and there's a variety of kind of components to, to social behaviors that, that really can help us to, to better understand, to, to, to mobilize people. Sure, absolutely. Uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. What are some of the obstacles that you've seen contributing to the spreading of infectious disease among pets? There's, I guess there's a couple here. The, the first one, and this might surprise some people, but it's around preventative care. And, you know, we, we talk about it, I think, to some extent. I think in general, we didn't get a probably, at least if you're like me, I didn't get a great education on it. We kind of learned how to deal with sick animals. We certainly don't deal with diagnostics for sick animals, but maybe less time around, around the key role that preventative care can really play. And so we, we obviously know that, that they work at reducing infectious diseases. But I guess what's sometimes really surprising is to see sometimes the, the low uptake on some of these measures that we just think are kind of no-brainers. And so I was just recently kind of reading through uh, AVMA, as, as many might know, has a, a pet ownership and demographics source book. It's a survey that they do every, every few years, and it's for uh, dog owning and cat owning and, and also other animals too, uh, owning uh, households in the U.S., and so I saw a couple of statistics that I thought were, were, were quite alarming, to be honest. So, for instance, there was one that said that 16% of households that had a dog said that the dog was on preventative care for intestinal worms, just 16%. 36% of, of households that own dogs, that dog was on preventative care against heartworm. And only 51% of households with dogs said that their dog was on a preventative against fleas, ticks, or flea or tick-borne disease. And I, you know, I just I'm I'm kind of floored by some of these. A lot of times we think of maybe our own our own little world or maybe our best clients, but there's there's certainly a, a strong need to try and address uh, some of these obstacles. 
And you know, when we think about that, obviously some of these are at the owner side. So owners come in, they they may not want to use it, they may not even be aware. But but of course, some of these these obstacles come come down to you know the veterinarian and and the, the staff members within within the clinic. And so um, trying to help owners recognize the utility of preventative care, I think, is sometimes hard, and to help owners uh, understand the benefits. And the importance of the veterinary staff to really be able to communicate some of those benefits is, is, is really key. I guess uh, another obstacle that I think about, uh, and anytime we talk about infectious diseases, especially infectious diseases of, of companion animals, is around surveillance programs. And if you say what surveillance programs, you're absolutely correct because there aren't a lot. And that's really frustrating. So for someone like myself that is really interested and engaged in better understanding infectious diseases in North America and our dogs and cats, there's really not a lot to go on. We don't, generally don't do a great job of tracking that. Um, and so we have no real good way of looking at the utility of you know, different interventions. So we've obviously you know, had huge, huge impact or huge changes in flea and tick uh, based products over the last couple of decades. You know, what, how has that impacted infectious diseases in, uh, in, in the United States? We, we really don't know. So, so those are tough and, and it's also hard because with, without those, it doesn't allow us to potentially forecast, doesn't allow us to identify diseases early on. And again, with what we're seeing these days, we, we recognize the utility and the importance of that. I guess another thing that, that's also important and I think hard and a challenge for, for clinical medicine is that diseases change really fast. And that means that we have to be at the top of our game all the time, right? So infectious diseases change. So we, we even have new tick vectors or vectors that become involved in infectious disease. We see new diseases emerge out of nowhere. We see them move from one country to another. Um, we see resistance occur within you know, bacterial species. We see outbreaks happen. And these things can happen really, really fast. And so we, we also though at the same time see some diseases that we've put a lot of energy and time into potentially you know, kind of dissolve and, and don't become as important. So this creates a real challenge for, for practitioners, for staff members to stay on top of, of, of what's occurring, to know best treatments and preventatives, diagnostics, really it's a lot. Um, this means, you know, a new skill set that we actually have to utilize. And so thinking about this concept of evidence-based decision-making, in other words, using the best evidence that's out there and that it's great if it's a randomized clinical trial, but but generally it's not. It's it may be lower levels of evidence. It may be anecdotal information, but but at least looking for that evidence and incorporating that evidence into our decision making to optimize patient care, optimize client care, and that's really important. And and it's becoming even more important these days with our ability to to access things online uh, and also for our clients to access them. And so really being familiar with uh, the primary literature. Some practitioners, I think, don't feel comfortable with some of these skills. They haven't had a chance to hone them, certainly, in veterinary school uh, or even in clinics. And so those are, are some of the pieces that I think that we begin to get challenged by. And then, I guess, finally, when we think about this is an underappreciation for some of the simple stuff, yet those that really can have huge impacts. And here... I'm kind of talking about infection control practices. So just as I spoke before about, you know, the utility of simple things like hand hygiene, 
you generally will see people when I go to a clinic, you know, we have a parvo dog or they have a panleukopenia cat. They do a really good job of, of, of identifying the infection control needs for those kind of really sick, you know, high impact disease cases, but oftentimes not quite as good a, a job of, of instituting those same types of important preventative practices with patients that are not showing clinical disease, but can certainly be shedding pathogens. We, we, you know, honestly, every animal that comes into our practices and into our clinics is likely shedding something that's pathogenic. That's just the way it goes. So the importance of kind of having this standard you know, minimal practices that occur with every single patient, regardless of, of, you know, overt clinical disease is really important. And for us to kind of appreciate the ability uh, for animals to spread infections, regardless of clinical signs, uh, is obviously a, another important component. An ounce of prevention, right? That's exactly it. You know, you feel like you're getting old when you, when you start not to not to claim anything against you there, but uh, oh, no. I've, used, I've used the exact same statement. And I'm like, boy, I sound like my dad more and more right. these days. But it's it's true. It's really true. Um, you know, every infection that you can you can prevent. And if you if you think about things like when we think about infectious diseases, you're not just preventing that one case. You're preventing potentially all the additional cases that that were infected by that additional case. So it can have a huge impact. Absolutely. And I mean, you, I mean, you probably better than anybody understand the importance of preventative medicine. And I know being a practicing veterinarian in a clinic, you see the negative impacts of people not practicing preventative medicine, but how do you convey the value of preventative medicine to pet owners? No, this is a really good question. And I think one that our, our profession really needs to tackle quickly. We're seeing concerns around reductions in uh, vaccination, as an example, vaccination coverage in some of our pets. Um, we're starting to begin to see some trends that this is this is decreasing, and and we need to figure out why, and we need to figure out what we can do to try and and correct this. So, I think there are a couple of pieces here. So so you know, when we think about decision making, it comes down to benefits and efforts in in a sense. And so as an example, the cost of preventative medicine is very clear effort, right? We know that when you're trying to have a conversation around an owner, they know how much the vaccine costs. They know the expense of the visit. They know concerns that they might have regarding potential side effects of maybe medications or maybe even vaccinations. Now, the other side of that coin, right? So, so if there's a large effort, a large cost involved, then there needs to be a huge benefit to kind of offset that to help clients make that decision. Now, helping people to recognize benefits, especially when it comes to preventative care, is, is more challenging. And, and this is the same challenge that we see in, in human health care or public health, right? So how many people did we you know, prevent from getting sick? We, we don't have a number. And so it, it becomes difficult. So we need to try and, and, and kind of make this more tangible. So I don't think there's, there's a, a one-size-fits-all solution here, but I do think there are a couple ways to get at it. And they include the concept of, of risk communication, they include, I think, storytelling, uh, and they also include visuals. So let me kind of kind of unpack those a little bit. So risk communication is, is not the same as education. So risk communication is really about an open dialogue with, with someone here. Maybe we're talking about a client. And here we're trying to really understand what their hesitancies might be 
toward a particular issue such as preventative care. So we're not just gonna educate them on why they need to do it. We're gonna kind of open it up for a dialogue or discussion and we're gonna be open. So in order for them, our client to really feel comfortable you know, shedding that and sharing that with us, they, they really do need to feel comfortable with us. Uh, we have to be careful about judgment and all those components. And so with that, we may really actually get to the heart of, of why they, for instance, don't want to vaccinate their animal or they don't want to, they don't think that they need to use a particular dewormer or something like that. Second is, is, is storytelling. And if, if you're like my father, my father was a great storyteller. And I suspect it, he was really quite successful at vet, at vet med because of that. And, and these are just simple scenarios that you've identified over your, you know, your career, maybe even from others. It's, it's totally fine to steal them from other people that you've encountered that, that help to make these conditions real for a client. So instead of just reading about a pathogen or a disease on a brochure, it's around kind of talking about those feelings, talking about that condition and what happened to that pet. I'm not talking about scaring people, but I'm really trying to help people recognize that these are real things that happen and they happen to other people at the practice and they could happen to, to them. And then I guess the visual clues are a variety of different things. And so, you know, I know people can use things like photographs or, or whatever that, that again, to help people recognize. So you go through and describe what, you know, canine distemper does to a dog and people maybe oh, that sounds, it sounds so fun. I don't want that to happen to my dog, but you see a picture of a dog that's head pressing into a corner that obviously has a much more impactful component on that client, but it can also be things like even maps. So there are a number of great free websites that are out there that can be a tool to help show where certain diseases are potentially happening. I think of CAPC, the Companion Animal Parasite Council, as one group that is that is doing a, a nice job. And so helping to illustrate kind of what's happening in your own state, or if someone is traveling elsewhere, what's happening in that state to help educate them and again have that, that risk communication around these are some things that we want to be thinking about for tick prevention, you know, here or, or as you travel. And finally, you know, there's, there's a lot of conversations around preventative care plans, and these can be very helpful, I think, to help make and, and drive home the importance of preventative care to clients. And, and so helping them recognize the costs that and the cost savings, I guess, that comes with preventative care. So as a package, this is what you get. Uh, and also recognizing what happens if their animal they don't take the package and their animal gets sick and how, how costly some of these types of uh, the care for, for some of these kind of conditions could incur. So, I mean, ultimately, you know, the best approach will depend on the client, but using some combination, if not all of these uh, can be extremely helpful in trying to, uh, to convey the value of preventative medicine. Sure. I mean, a lot of what I hear you saying is just kind of opening that door for conversation instead of, you know, well, I say yes and you say no, kind of creating a conversation around the subject to see where the hesitancy lies and if we can mitigate that fear or hesitance around preventative care. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the big, the big, of course, elephant in the room is who's got time. And, and that's an important one and one that we all have to recognize. And so in order to make this successful, 
you need to ideally identify the clients that that you do need to spend the time with. And so ensuring that, you know, your technicians or other individuals that are, are getting that history for you, hopefully, or some of it, they can help you to identify the clients that you're going to need to spend a little bit more time. Also having, you know, really at your fingertips, some of these, these components that we're talking about, which will reduce the some of the time commitment. And then at the end of the day, really getting good at, at having that conversation and developing some, some really good talking points, I think is, is, is the way that we're successful. Sure, sure. So lately, we've been hearing a lot about herd immunity. So can we achieve that in our pets for some of the more common diseases? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And sometimes you'll, you'll hear, you know, we're talking about vaccine hesitancy or other things. You'll, you'll hear people use the term herd immunity. Uh, so I think it's really important to, to kind of understand what it is and, and what it isn't as well. So, so herd immunity is really kind of this collective immunological status of a population, right? So overall, as a, as a large population, high herd immunity means that there's not a lot of individuals in the population that are susceptible. So they either might have gotten infected already or they could have been vaccinated or otherwise adjusted in some way that they're not going to get infected. And it's difficult then if, if you have high herd immunity for a pathogen to really be spread because chances are that one infectious animal doesn't come across many, if any, other animals that are potentially naive or, or susceptible. And so we can increase herd immunity, you know, as I mentioned, by decreasing susceptible population through one means that we oftentimes talk about, and certainly right now we are, is through in general vaccination. So I, I have the, the privilege of, of actually talking to, to first year veterinary students. Uh, I'm sure anyone that's a vet student out there and remembers their epidemiology course, you may remember it fondly, you may not. And I've encountered both types of students. But one thing I think that we can agree on is, is that there are lots of components around that that are that in, in, in veterinary epidemiology and first year vet your epi that are, are really exciting and interesting. And so, you know, one of the things that that uh, we, that I teach is, is the concepts around herd immunity. So for instance, uh, if we know what's called the basic reproductive number for a disease, and so you've probably, people have, have heard this used around uh, COVID-19. So this is in general, kind of the, the average number of individuals that would directly be infected by a single infectious case. In other words, if we took one individual that's infectious and we stuck it in the middle of a bunch of individuals that are all susceptible, how many of them that are susceptible would truly get infected? And it's generally not all of them, right? So, so most of the diseases that we, that we generally talk about in even human medicine or certainly in veterinary medicine are somewhere of having a reproductive, uh, basic reproductive number around two or four, somewhere in that realm, right? So on average, anywhere between two to four individuals become infected from every infectious individual. But what's really kind of cool about that is if we know that, that basic reproductive number, then we can actually calculate how large of the population, what proportion of the population needs to be immune to stop or prevent an epidemic, or what we say is to reach herd immunity. So as an example, I've, I've thrown out some numbers, you know, a basic reproductive number of two or four. So if you have a basic reproductive number of two, you generally need about 50% of the population to be immune to achieve herd immunity. With a basic reproductive number of four, you need about 75% of the population to be immune for herd immunity. 
And so this is, you know, certainly very much doable, 50%, 75%, although I've you know, also shown you and talked about some issues that we have with, with preventative medicine that we certainly are, are, are struggling with and, and need to address. But with a highly effective vaccine, that these, these, these numbers are, are, are definitely reachable. Uh, and with that, of course, then epidemics or outbreaks wouldn't occur. Right. So, yes, we may have kind of one off infections. This also means for the clients that say, well, you know, I'm kind of banking on herd immunity, therefore I don't need to get my, my animal vaccinated. That's not exactly true because now your animal still is uh, potentially susceptible to that disease. So your animal might be the only one or one of the few that gets infected. It just means herd immunity overall protects the overall population. Right. So we need to, to really be clear in our own minds and our clients' minds really what that means. Uh, so just like any disease in people or other animals, we can certainly acquire, uh, you know, herd immunity for pets for, for some of these common diseases. I'm hearing my internal medicine professor saying, yes, these are the overall odds, but for this individual, the odds are zero or a hundred. <laughs> that's right. That's, <laughs> I love it. I love it. And so it, that's exactly right. And, 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 and sometimes it's, it's a tough conversation to have with owners to try and, and help people kind of recognize those pieces. And, um, and, and again, some of the, the pieces that we've already chatted about can, can sometimes be effective in swaying people from one, one extreme to the other. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about diagnostic testing. How important is diagnostic testing for an individual dog? Yeah, so I would, I would say that really, you know, as part of a preventative care plan, we've been talking a lot, of course, about, about prevention. So as an ounce of prevention, it's really kind of critical, obviously, for, for critical pets. Um, and having a diagnostic test involved in that is in that preventative care plan is key. It allows us, of course, to identify potential problems early. So ideally, if we're if this is part of our preventative care plan, we identify individuals that have been, been infected early, maybe address concerns, and can and also even change and make changes to the preventative care plan for that particular patient. So as an example, Example, we're finding, uh, you know, an animal that that tests positive against a, a vector-borne or a, a tick-borne disease. Yes, it means that they they may have that that particular pathogen, but it also means that they were bitten by a tick. So we need to obviously address the pathogen that that may be in play here, but also around tick prevention overall. I think the biggest challenge, though, where where I see clinicians appropriately using diagnostic testing, is is really ensuring that we have a plan for how to interpret the test and how to act on the results, right? So as people say, don't run the test if you don't know how to use the information. So as an example, you know, let's, we have that dog that's coming in for its annual exam. Uh, the dog's otherwise feeling great. We run our, our diagnostic test and we find that the dog has antibodies for Borrelia bigdorferi, you know, the causative agent of Lyme disease transmitted by ticks. So if we have a plan as to how we're going to address that, and, and that plan probably is going to depend a little bit on where we're practicing, where that dog has been. Uh, I'm going to use some other, you know, scary terms like the positive and negative predictive value of that test. So based on the prevalence of that disease in your in your region, you're going to have a very different, uh, you know, kind of approach to whether you trust that positive test or whether this might be a false positive. So that becomes extremely important to kind of include. Um, and so if we have a plan, and ideally we have an evidence-based plan on how we're going to actually act on that finding, it's going to be much more successful. And so when I say evidence-based plan, this could, as an example, going with our with our Lyme with our Lyme dog, this could involve, for instance, following 
current evidence-based con consensus guidelines. So there, there are guidelines out there as an example from ACVIM on Lyme uh, in dogs. And as an example, this might suggest monitoring the dog for evidence of clinical signs um, or proteinuria, and then taking action should each of these, uh, either of these be observed. So I think having a, a really clear plan can not only be extremely effective, obviously, for the veterinarian, but also extremely helpful as we begin to kind of navigate what these, these diagnostic tests mean and how best to address uh, the care of that individual patient. Sure. So we've talked about prevention, an ounce of prevention, and We've talked about Lyme in particular. Let's talk about vaccinating specifically. So some pet owners are concerned about over-vaccinating. Do you think that they should be? Such a good question and such an important question. I already mentioned a little bit about you know, this concept of vaccine hesitancy that that we're, we're seeing and, and likely seeing more and more of. Um, so let's start at the basics, right? So vaccines absolutely are, are a form of medicine. Uh, they, just like everything that we do in vet med, they should be used appropriately. They should be used judiciously, just like everything else in every other type of medication. So this means if you have a vaccine, you use it when it's indicated and you don't use it when it's not indicated. And you know the benefits of an effective, uh, sorry, effective vaccine are are huge. We've we've seen that. If anyone, you know, if you, if you're if you're questioning the utility of vaccination, hopefully you have some some vets that, that are at your practice that you know that have been around since uh, just when when or practicing before the Parvo vaccine was available. Have a conversation about them with them about what the Parvo virus outbreak was like prior to the vaccine being available. And I think you'll have a very different approach or at least an appreciation for the utility of some things that we take for granted. So yeah, so some of these, you know, kind of horrific diseases in our pets have been, as, as with Parvo, controlled through the use of effective vaccination. So we've got a lot of great uh, vaccines in vet med and we really should be grateful and we really hopefully can use them appropriately. And the challenge, of course, is that we, we do see vaccine reactions. They're, they're generally quite rare, um, but they can be a concern. Some owners seem to concentrate uh, their energies on these potential adverse reactions. And so we really need to be ready to have that conversation around this. And again, this gets back to all those, those concepts we talked about before around risk communication, around storytelling, around uh, using visuals. So, so kind of taking these things together, pet owners should certainly, I would encourage them to be careful and to evaluate the benefits and risks for everything you know, that they put in their pets' bodies, just like hopefully we do for ourselves. And this certainly includes vaccines. And so I would also encourage people to, to look at the evidence. So use an evidence-based uh, approach. So as a veterinarian, as a veterinary uh, clinic, thinking about having an evidence-based vaccine program. So what's the evidence that supports certain types of vaccines that are out there and when we use them? And so this will optimize you know, the benefits, reduce risks. And so hopefully we can choose the best vaccines and the frequency for you know, that particular pet and that particular owner. And so I think with this type of independent evidence-based process, um, this will be, will be very successful. You know, and I, and I also want to, to also emphasize that, you know, we don't just stop here. We, we have, you know, ways to go. We, we certainly want to, and we have an obligation to continue to push our understanding of, of vaccines. And so this means, you know, continuing to develop better vaccines, safer vaccines, and ideally optimizing the frequency of, of administration of these vaccines. Sure, sure. I mean, we talked a little, a little bit earlier about the outbreak of canine influenza in the southern U.S. and it 
made everything you're saying make a lot of sense of, you know, vaccinate and preventative care and, and all these things. I know that was several years ago at this point, and that's kind of my memory of infectious disease in pets, but how common are outbreaks of infectious disease in pets? Yeah, great. I mean, great, great question. And, and you know, this gets back to some of the earlier questions uh, in that sometimes it, we don't really have any great data. We certainly know that uh, we have outbreaks that happen all the time. Uh, so we have, this includes, of course, you know, the, what we call quote unquote mundane outbreaks of, you know, CIRDC or canine infectious respiratory complex, you know, parainfluenza or similar pathogens that if you just look and just Google, you'll see them all the time in the news. And so these do occur with some regular uh, frequency. The, the problem again is, is really that we don't have good surveillance programs. And, and without that type of program, we're gonna generally underestimate the frequency of these outbreaks and the importance of these diseases as well and, and how they occur. And I think something that really illustrates the utility of, of, uh, of a surveillance program and, and hopefully we will be going in North America, there was an example, a group from the U United Kingdom identified an outbreak of severe vomiting in dogs. And so they actually were using electronic medical records from a number of, of practices in the UK, and they were able to mine those data and actually see that they had a huge spike in the number of dogs that were presenting across all these veterinary clinics with you know, the, the clinical signs of vomiting. And so they were able to actually link this outbreak to a canine, a novel canine enteric coronavirus. And it likely involved hundreds, if not thousands of dogs over a several month time frame. So I think highlighting the importance of utilizing these types of measures as we go forward so that um, we can really better learn from this. And, and with, without these types of surveillance programs, you know, it's gonna be really challenging to identify these types of outbreaks and to really get a handle on infectious disease in our pets. What about quarantining? Do you think that the quarantining that pet owners were required to do in 2020 and still are having to make changes for today is going to impact the risk of infectious disease in our pets? You know, it's a really an interesting question. It's one that when the when the pandemic, we were first starting to go through lockdown and all these various things, we talked about this a lot. Um, and I think there's kind of two sides to this. So, I mean, I think no question in my mind that this process of quarantining and self-isolating uh, has a number of obviously dramatic health impacts for our pets. Some of these can be related to infectious diseases. Some of these, of course, are related to other health and behavioral problems. But let, let's focus on infectious diseases as an example. So, you know that many of these animals were for instance, unable to get veterinary care, specifically, you know, preventative veterinary care, uh, likely uh, didn't get, you know, routine, routine vaccinations or routine preventative care. Many clients didn't get the type of education that they might normally receive, uh, for instance, during a puppy or a kitten uh, visit. And, and so I think led to really uh, huge gaps in, in, preventative, in, prevent, in prevention and in preventable components and likely resulted in uh, preventable infections. Now on the other you know, flip side, so some pets level of exposure and risk might be adjusted in various ways. So we might see, for instance, reduced risk for some animals because they're spending most of the time indoors or when they are outside, then maybe they're in close proximity to their owners or on leashes or, or other components um, where the, so that maybe had uh, a lower uh, chance of, for instance, becoming uh, acquiring an infectious disease. And then maybe the other flip side is that of that is, 
is people are, are bringing their pets into novel situations uh, such as dog parks or other locations and where many animals are actually, as I said before, uh, not receiving the preventative care that they should have. So I think it's gonna take us a while to, to truly understand what, what role the pandemic has had uh, and will have on preventative care and the impact of that on infectious diseases in our pets. But, but I think there's no question that, that it is having an effect and, 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 and continues to. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Saul, it's been wonderful having you. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to share with us? No, I guess all I'll say is, is uh, for, for everybody that's out there, I mean, infectious diseases are, you know, play such an important role in our pets' health and our health. And I think unlike many other conditions that we deal with in veterinary medicine, overall, many of these are largely preventable. And so trying to incorporate that into our day-to-day -day routines, whether that's part of infection control, whether that's part of preventative medicine, whether it's part of client education and communication, I think there's a lot that we can do to really improve our patients' lives, improve our clients' lives, improve our own lives in instituting those preventative measures and getting that information out and, and improving the veterinary care for our patients. Wonderful, well, thanks again for joining us. My pleasure, thanks for the opportunity. Thank you, Dr. Stahl, for your perspective and for the conversation. And thank you to Zoetis for sponsoring this episode. If you'd like to find more episodes like this, click on the Education tab on Vetfolio's webpage. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this session, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.